Lord, we come before you with humble hearts. We ask, Lord, first and foremost, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come. We know, Lord, that no matter what happens, your will will not be broken. We know that you are able to work all things together for good according to your will. And we know that no one is elevated into a position of authority without you at least allowing it. But we also recognize, Lord, that you have given freedom to people, freedom to make choices. We pray in the electoral choices that are going to be taking place, have been and are taking place in this nation, that your will would be satisfied. We pray, Lord, that your selection would prevail, not only in terms of the presidency, but in terms of every office up for election in the land. We pray, Lord, and ask that your will would prevail through the voice of the people in the polling places as they make selections, we make selections, about policies and measures that are on the ballot, candidates and people. And yet we recognize also, Lord, that there are genuine and legitimate differences of opinion on matters such as these. And so we pray that you would grant to us, particularly as your people, an attitude of grace by which we could hold to the truth and the values that you, by your word and by your spirit, have invested in us, and yet do so in a way that also reflects the reality that we may not have the right answer in every situation, and even if we are confident that we do have the right answer, we can express it in a righteous way, one that shows love and respect for other human beings, one that seeks harmony and unity, especially among your people, but also among all the people with whom we live. Your word over and over again says these things, Lord, so we know that they are of your will, and we are instructed by you to pray in this way, and so we are praying, and we believe that as we pray according to your will, by your spirit, there's power in our prayer, power that can oppose not any human being, because it's not flesh and blood that we grapple with, but rather those principalities and powers of demonic origin that oppose you and have encamped in our world. Lord, we come against those in the authority of your name, with the power of your blood, and in the unity of your spirit as one people. We say, pull down principalities and powers that are opposed to you and that delude and, and, and destroy human life and that work in opposition to the things of the kingdom. Lord, we ask that those things would be evacuated from our land. And even, Lord, that you in your glory would be glorified and that you would make a public spectacle of shame of the principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of opposition that stand against you. Lord, we pray for repentance in the land. And out of that repentance, Lord, we pray there would be revival by your spirit. We ask that we as your people would not grow weary in doing those things that you have called us to do and living in the way that you've called us to live, but that we would continue faithful in you. It's only by your spirit and your power that we can do that. Your word is a light to our feet that shines on our path to show us the way to walk in that. And Lord Jesus, you're the one we're following. You're our model. And so Lord, we we follow you and desire to follow you. We ask for grace and strength to do that in a way that is winsome to the world, that that makes us powerful witnesses on your behalf to your truth, to a world in need. We do pray, Lord, that there would be healing, not only from COVID, but from every disease that is uh, afflicting the land. But we also pray, Lord, that there would be reduction of COVID cases, decrease in deaths, uh, decrease 
in, uh, in the diagnosis, Lord. We pray that there would be increase of treatment methods and measures. We pray even for a cure. And Lord God, we pray that businesses would not be destroyed, that uh, people would not be depressed, that the economy would not be defeated. We pray, Lord, that there would be prosperity in the land. We pray that there would be food on the tables of families. We pray that there would be roofs over the heads of people. We pray that there would be clothes on the backs of the needy. We pray that there would be the light of your spirit in the heart of every man, woman, and child in this land. It's a bold prayer, but it's worth the asking. And so we pray for it. We pray, Lord, that you would push back and press back the clouds of darkness that delude people and, and that, that try to obscure your light and try and close people's minds and hearts to your truth. Lord, please break through those by the power of your name, by the power of your light that shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. Lord, we pray that you would deliver our land from natural disasters, that you would prevent and protect us from fires and earthquakes, from floods and storms, not only here in Los Angeles, not only here in the United States, but in the Philippines and all over the world, Lord, in every nation, in Europe and Asia, in Africa and South America. We pray, Lord, that on every continent of the globe, whether Australia or Antarctica, wherever the soul of people tread, and even in those places where we do not, that the grace of your presence and the light of your life and the hope of your truth would shine, Lord, over all the world. And we pray, Lord, that all the world would open to you and to the beauty of who you are and the glory of what you do. We know, Lord, that there are difficult times and difficult times no doubt lie ahead. Your word has told us to be prepared. So, Lord, we ask that you would keep us strong and faithful no matter what comes. We pray that you would protect our homes and this, your house here, PCF, and everywhere where your name is lifted up and where your word is taught and where your spirit is welcomed. We pray, Lord, that the grace of your covering protection would be there. And we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to walk strongly for you, shine brightly for you, and not be afraid. Put hope in our hearts once again today, Lord, because you, you are a hope giver. You are a promise maker. You are a promise keeper. You are a chain breaker and a deliverer. You are a doctor and a healer. You are a priest and a prophet to us, Lord Jesus Christ. You're our Messiah, our Savior, and you're also our friend. We put our trust in you and declare your grace upon our land by your will, in your spirit, and in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. If you agree with that, say it loud, say it proud, and say it strong. Say amen, 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 amen. The prayers of the people of God are powerful because the Spirit of God is powerful and the Spirit of God is in our prayers. That's not something that we say arrogantly. It's something we say with awe and astonishment and the deepest of humility because we are not worthy to be recipients of the Spirit except that Jesus Christ has made us worthy through the shedding of his blood. Hallelujah, hallelujah. If there's somebody around you, turn to them and say, I am grateful to God today.
You probably can't see it, at least not very well. But here in my hand, I hold a coin. It's actually the smallest denomination that we have in our current currency. It's a penny. Now on the slide, there's something rather more valuable there because that's a gold coin minted by the United States. I chose that image for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that today's message is entitled Both Sides Now. But on one side of that coin, at least, there's a phrase that I would like to remember today. In God, we trust. Not in coins, not in kings, but in Christ, we trust. Amen. This coin that I hold in my hand has upon it a face. Abraham Lincoln, former president of the United States, and some would argue, among the greatest. I'd certainly add my yes and amen to that. But today I'm not talking about coins. I'm not talking about currency, except to the degree that I'm talking about our capacity in Christ to be agents of God's will. Why the image of a coin? Why the title of both sides now? Well, a coin has two sides. In fact, one of the ways that you can use a coin is by tossing it, making a decision by virtue of a coin. I hope nobody is making their election decision by tossing a coin. I think that would be irresponsible. In fact, we recognize that the tossing of a coin is an arbitrary way to invite a kind of destined outcome, I suppose. And the way that we know how the coin has made a decision for us is that it's got two sides, a front and a back, a top and a bottom, a back and a front, however you want to put it. Heads and tails, I guess, is the typical way. But that's not actually why coins are made. Coins are minted and given an image because they are intended to carry value, because they are intended as a means of investment and commerce, communication between people about things of value. They transmit value, if you will. You may remember that in the days of Jesus, there was a question about a coin for him. It was really a question about currency. It was really a question about money. And in fact, it was a political question. Do you know that the religious leaders came to Jesus and posed a question to him, as they often did, that was designed from a very political premise? And that premise was that they desired to paint Jesus into a corner. They wanted to put him in a position where no matter which side he chose, he was going to be in trouble. The question that they presented was this. Should we, as Jewish people here in the land of God, living in Israel, but under this present occupation of the oppressive government of Rome, should we pay taxes to Rome? Now, the religious leaders were asking this not because they were particularly interested in Jesus' answer, as I say, but because they desired to put him into a dilemma and also because they wanted it to be a political dilemma. They wanted to, to catch him in a, in, a, in a system in which there was no way for him to win. The rationale behind it was this. The Roman Empire was obviously contradictory in so many ways to the word of God. Rome was given over to a plurality of idols. It was a pagan religious system. In fact, even Caesar was supposed to be worshipped in Rome. 
And there were not only many false gods, but there was much behavior that ran in the face of the kind of moral and spiritually integrous living that the word of God and the people of God were called to live in. So obviously there were many Jewish people who felt that to pay into the Roman system was actually to, to be sullied and dirtied by association with that, that pagan and, and unrighteous system. And it was also a, a, a recognition that the people of God were being oppressed by this occupying force of Rome. And so why would you pay your occupiers? Why would you pay into this despotic system? So if Jesus said, yes, pay your taxes to Rome, the religious leaders were certain that there would be many devout, righteous people who would be offended by Jesus' response and would turn away from him and reject him, even turn against him and oppose him. On the other hand, if Jesus said in light of that, don't pay your taxes, don't pay into the, uh, the evil spoils of Rome, then Jesus would be in trouble with an opposite side, another faction, which was, of course, the empowered side of the government of Rome. And they could actually bring that testimony to Rome and say, do you know that this man is telling people not to pay their Roman taxes? Have him arrested and uh, bring him up on charges. So the religious leaders figured they were very clever to have created this dilemma. What they didn't realize is that Jesus wasn't looking for political power, which is not to say that politics don't matter or that God isn't interested in the rulership of this world, that is, those that sit on thrones and those that make decisions. God's very much interested in that, very much interested in what we think about that and how we act about that. But Jesus had a purpose that was even higher than that. It encompassed that, but it wasn't limited to that. So when they came to Jesus with this political posturing, trying to get him to choose one side or another, Jesus answered in a way that addresses both sides right here and right now with a larger reality about a deeper truth. In fact, the very purpose that Jesus came for when he describes his purpose is to testify to the truth. Ultimately, Jesus would be brought before the Roman authorities, not on this question because he answered it so wisely and according to the Spirit. And I'll say it in just a moment, although many of you are already familiar with the answer that he gave. But I want to call into sharp focus this reality also. When Jesus was actually brought before Pilate, the, the, the Roman proconsul ruling over the region at that time. He was on trial. It was for no fault of his own. There was nothing righteous about his arrest. There was nothing right even about his trial. There was very much that was wrong and unrighteous about it. And yet, when he stood before Pilate, he stood there by the will of God. That's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? That people could be doing things deceptively, and, and wrongly, unrighteously, and yet the will of God is somehow still operating in the midst of that. And when he stood before Pilate, he gave as his reason for being to testify to the truth. He said, that's the reason I was born, to testify to the truth. Truth doesn't change. Truth never dies Truth is about more than just accurate information, although obviously it encompasses that. Truth has a name. Truth also has a face. Truth is a person. 
and his name is Jesus Christ. Pilate said, what is truth? And didn't realize that truth was staring him in the face. And it was out of that truth that Jesus spoke when they brought the coin to him and said, should we pay taxes or not? He said, whose face is on that coin? Well, just like Abraham Lincoln's face is on this penny, so at that time, the face of the ruler was on their coinage. The face of Caesar was on the coin. And so Jesus said, therefore, since his face is on it, it must belong to him. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. There is implicit in his statement a recognition of a truth that is only revealed in the Hebrew Bible, the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the word of God, which is from the very beginning, when God made people, he made them in his image. Male and female, he made them in his image. It says so in Genesis 2. The Imago Dei, the image of God, is on you. So Jesus is saying, do with your money what is right and proper for you to do with your money, according to the laws and the rules that you live under. But give yourself to God. That's not saying don't give your money to God. In fact, we are grateful, even as Pastor Ron said earlier, and it is always in our prayer, our prayer of thanksgiving to God and to God for you, that you continue to give faithfully to the works of God, which include giving to this community of faith if you're a part of PCFLA, but also involves giving of your resource to other worthy enterprises that God might put upon your heart. Uh, this week in our Bible study, we were reading in Luke chapter 16 and talking about how it is possible for people to owe you a debt and maybe God would call you to forgive that debt. And that's a kind of giving also. You are giving grace to someone else just as God has shown to you. Does somebody owe you something right now that God would put on your heart and say, why don't you contact them and say, you know what, don't pay me back. You don't need to. I want to forgive that debt. I, I, it's my pleasure to do that because God has forgiven my debts and I want to forgive yours. Maybe there's somebody in need and you feel the prompting. You say, you know what? I'm going to write a check to that person today and just give them that money. But I want to let them know I'm giving this to you on behalf of Jesus. Please receive it because it's a gift from God through me to you. Don't make a big show about it, of course, because then that becomes your reward. But simply... Feel and experience the glory of knowing that you are giving in the name of God and fulfilling the image of God in your life. Give yourself to God and let God be in charge of you. There's two sides to every person. Every person, no matter what we do, we are made in the image of God. And I would suggest that there's nothing we can do to erase that. God's image is imprinted on all people. But the other side of the coin of your soul and mine is that God has put something else in us that is also reflective of him. And that is, just as God has the freedom and the creative capacity to make choices, God has given free will to you and I. We are made in his image and we can't change that, but we have a will that we can turn towards whatever we choose to turn it. In fact, one of the realities of worship is whatever we focus and fix upon, we begin to reflect. This coin is still shiny. That's a nice thing in an early coin. And it means that there's something of a reflection in it. So there's the 
image on one side, and on the other side, there's a reflection of what it's looking at. If you and I will look at Christ and make him the center of our life, there'll be that image on both sides now. But if we are determined to live according to our own way and according to our own will, then we will begin to look at other goals, desire other things, and they will become to us an idol, and we will begin to look like them. I'm titling this sermon Both Sides Now, and on the eve, essentially, of an election, you might suppose that it means that I'm going to be talking about both sides of the political spectrum, liberal and conservative, or here in the United States, the two predominant political parties of Democratic and Republican. I'm not going to be talking about that, not in any specific way, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that you are probably just about as tired of hearing those kinds of conversations as you possibly could be, or maybe not. Maybe you thrive on those conversations. And there's plenty of value to be found and had in those conversations, and there's a point of responsibility you and I have this extraordinary privilege. Just as God has given us free will, we live in a land where we have the freedom to vote. That is an extraordinary privilege that the vast majority of human beings who have lived on this earth in any kind of social political system have not been able to enjoy. So let's not squander it. Let's not just toss a coin over it. Let's invest ourselves in using our will and our vote wisely. And that means as people of God, we do it prayerfully. Now, people of prayer and good conscience can actually disagree, and that is a little bit about what I want to talk about today, which is that we not become so intractably entrenched in political ideologies or affiliations that we lose sight of the unity to which God calls us or also the humility by which we recognize that no matter what we do with our will, there is a will of God that is always yet higher. And so we will do the best that we can in the spirit that God has given to us. But we also need to recognize that there are things that go beyond what you and I can know and see. And those things, those are times to pray that God would use our decisions for his purposes. In fact, it's always the time to pray that way. Both sides now. There is a song famously with that title, written by one of the most famous daughters of Canada, Joni Mitchell. It is probably one of the most well-known of the canon of her songs. She's got many great ones. She says that she wrote the song in the mid-1960s when she was on a plane she was reading a book by the author Saul Bellow called Henderson the Rain King. And there's a quote from that book that is very likely the passage that she was reading or had in mind when she was flying on that plane and ultimately wrote the lyrics of the song. In it, there is a character in this novel who is flying in a plane. And of course, in the mid-20th century, flying in planes was still relatively novel. It was uh, something that most people had not experienced at that time uh, and certainly not prior generations. So the character in that book, written in 1959, is dreaming down at the clouds, the author says. In other words, he's flying over them and looking down in this almost dreamlike reverie at the beauty of those clouds. And it says, I thought that when I was a kid, I had dreamed up at them. You know those youthful afternoons of staring at clouds and imagining what you could see in them? But now... I've dreamed at clouds from both sides, says the character. I've been down below, and now I'm up above. And it dawned on me that no other generation of men has had this experience. 
and having it, one should be able to accept his death very easily. Make of that what you will. What Joni Mitchell made of it was a song that meditated on that very same notion. There she was reading this, and she was in a plane, and she looked out at the clouds and thought of that extraordinary reversal of perspectives, having been down below and having been up above. Down below and finding something beautiful in the clouds, up above and finding something beautiful. But also the reality that sometimes clouds block the sun. They rain and snow on everyone. So many things I would have done, but clouds got in the way, the song says. And then the refrain, I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down, and still somehow it's clouds illusions that I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. The whole song becomes a meditation on perspective and the elusive and illusory quality of perspective. She talks about love in the second stanza and ultimately concludes with life. I've looked at life from both sides now. Boy, there's something in the song that speaks to the present moment, I think. Tears and fears and feeling proud to say I love you right out loud. Dreams and schemes and circus crowds. I've looked at life that way. I've certainly looked at it that way this year. But now old friends are acting strange. They shake their heads. They say, I've changed. Well, something's lost, but something's gained in living every day. I've looked at life from both sides now, from win and lose, and still somehow it's life's illusions I recall, I really don't know life at all. She was a young woman when she wrote it, but it's an older woman's thought, it's an older man's thought. It's the kind of thought that dawns on us as we age. We see more and more of life, and we may feel like we understand it less and less. And in that context, there's an impulse. And the impulse is, I want certainty. I want to understand. I want to know where I stand. Pick a side and then fight for it. And there's value and, and integrity in that, but there's also a risk that you become so committed to a side, not for the fact that the side is right or better, but because you don't want to be in the place of confusion, of unknowing. And yet, in the knowing can come confusion. In the scriptures, there's an idea that gets reiterated over and over. The Psalms and the Proverbs are both part of what we would typically refer to as wisdom literature. It's one of the major categories of scripture. And its, it's focus is generally on coming to an understanding about how to live. And yet the proper way to live is not necessarily knowing all the right answers. If you read through the book of Proverbs, and by the way, you could read the book of Proverbs um, in, in a very uh, comfortable fashion in a single month. Maybe that's something that would be worth doing in this season of time. If you're someone who's looking to build more of the word into your life, and all of us should be people like that if we're following Jesus, then maybe the book of Proverbs would be a good place for you to start if that's not a part of your regular practice. And as you do read through the Proverbs, you'll see that there are some Proverbs that seem to contradict each other that say that, uh, that you should respond to a situation one way and then in another. And even that is part of the collective wisdom of God, which is to say, not that there's never a definitive decision, but also that living according to God's way is not simply a matter of knowing the right thing or the wrong thing, but of walking according to the Spirit of God. And people in the world, which is really all of us, were born into this world that is deluded, that is under cover of cloud, where there is darkness and storm, where there is danger and treachery, where there is division. 
and lots of destruction. We are prone to make choices according to our own will. And yet the scripture says, be careful about that. I'm looking forward to the time ahead. Next year, God willing, I'm excited about what we will be studying together in the scriptures. I'm also excited about how we're moving forward into a decade of destiny in which there's greater harvest yet ahead. We are now in a month of Thanksgiving in a year of harvest and we're coming to the conclusion of that theme for this time, but it's certainly not the conclusion of God's purposes through it and for it. There's an ongoing purpose of productivity and usefulness, of witness and hope that should really be animating our lives. Yes, we are looking to the clouds all the time now, recognizing that on the other side of the clouds may be Christ coming in them. And we want to be ready for that, but not in a way that says we're no longer interested in what's going on here on earth or that is somehow diminishing or destructive of the world around us, but quite the opposite. We would recognize that God's heart is for the world, that God so loved the world that he gave his son and that you and I are meant to be people of hope and people of light and people of promise. So I want to make a promise to you, God willing, if I'm still here and Jesus hasn't returned yet, next year on the preaching calendar will be a series on the book of Judges. It follows the book of Joshua, which we've been in in the last couple of years. And in the book of Judges, we get this refrain over and over, that at that time there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was a problem, because what was right in their eyes often didn't reflect the reality of God. Once again, that's what the wisdom literature teaches us. Proverbs 16.9 says, In their hearts... Humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. In other words, you can make your choices, you can cast your ballot, but God is in charge. Make no mistake, God is in charge. Psalm 127, 1 says, unless the Lord is the one that's building the house, the people who are laboring to build it, build it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards and guardians are standing watch in vain. So not only is it true that no matter what we do, God's will will advance, but it's also true that if we want his will to be a blessing for us, then we need to seek his will and ask his blessing and yield to his will. Give our will over to his so that his would be reflected in ours. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a path in front of every person and it looks right. It looks beautiful. But it ends in death. There's a couple of ways that we could understand it. One is this, this fact. No matter what you do, no matter what I do, no matter who is president, we're all going to die. Well, you say, maybe Jesus comes before we do. Paul says in the scriptures, we may not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So no matter what, there's a transformation involved that is at least a death-like process. But it, it, nothing is more universally acceptable and predictable for human beings than that we will die. And yet, it being the most predictable and reliable thing, it is the one thing that most of us think the least about, the hardest to conceive. But it's true. No matter what comes next, it comes to an end, at least on this side of eternity. It's appointed to everyone to live once and then to come before God. And when we come before God, God's going to open up the books. And you know what is in the books? The choices we made. 
the decisions we made. We who were made in his image, did we give ourselves to him? Did we invest in the kingdom or did we invest in the world? Did we honor his image in us and invite his spirit to conform us to it? An image that is Christ, my friends. Or did we deny that truth and in doing so, defraud that image? My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord in Isaiah 55. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Not only above the clouds, but above all creation. Wise people take advice. When I woke up this morning and opened up my Bible app to read in my devotions as I do, try to do in the first five minutes of every day, this was a passage that happened to be there in the app for me. And I thought, how apropos to today's discussion. Wise people take advice. Not many people take advice these days. Not many people may be wise. Be people willing to take advice. But consider the source and test the spirits. And if you're looking for the best advice, the best advice is in the word of God. But you might be surprised by what the will of God has in mind. How can you and I know what living according to God's will looks like? Open to John chapter 7, won't you? The image of God that is upon us is an image that you and I cannot see confirmed on our own, because the scripture says no one has seen God at any time except, according to John chapter 1, that the Son of God, that is Jesus Christ, has revealed him. If you and I want to know who God is, not only is it revealed in his word, but he is revealed in the living word, the logos of Jesus Christ, the word who was in the beginning, and he was with God, and he is God, and all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. And you were made in his image, and he came to us so that we could see what it looks like to live according to the will and the spirit of God. In the days of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus came to Jerusalem. Not only was the Feast of Tabernacles a high point of the religious year, we talked about it recently in the, uh, in the uh, series of messages that I brought uh, just a couple of weeks ago, but it was also a time when the eyes of the entire nation turned to the capital. It wasn't an election, but many of the things that we are experiencing here in the U.S. in these days leading up to election were part of that feast time. It was a time when people made their opinions known. If there was displeasure with leadership or political policies, the people in the streets would demonstrate about it. It was a time for debates. It was a time in which people devolved into their factions. Did you know that in the days of Jesus, in the days of ancient Israel in the first century, there were every bit as many factions and political divisions in that society as we have in our own. In fact, if anything, it may have been more. An interesting fact emerges as we study the apostles that Jesus chose, the 12 that were closest to him and that followed him. We can't say it necessarily definitively, at least as I can recall in one case, but there is good implication through their names, through some of the things that are said about them, some of the things that they say that are recorded, that Jesus had brought around himself people from all of these different factions. There was a group known as the Essenes. In fact, there was one community of Essenes in a place called Qumran out in the desert, the Judean desert, where they kept the scriptures in a cave. And after 2,000 years, those scriptures were found in the 1940s by a young shepherd boy. And they are the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
the Essenes were people who believed very deeply and strongly in a devout attention to the word of God. They kept the scriptures. But they were something of a monastic order. They saw society as having grown um, very um, sinful and, and having been infected, if you will, by the paganistic uh, Greco-Roman world. And so they, they came out of the cities and found wilderness places. And they would preach about repentance. And they would call people to renewal. And they put an emphasis on spiritual sincerity. It is very likely that John the Baptist was a member of an Essene sect or was seen as something similar to an Essene leader. And we know that there were a number of Jesus' followers, including John and James, who were among the closest to Jesus, who had initially been students of John the Baptist. In fact, even Jesus may have been part of an Essene-type community. And yet, we also know that there were people who were part of the zealot faction. Simon is called a zealot. It doesn't just mean that he's passionate about the things of God. It means that he was politically affiliated with a group who felt that the only way that the unrighteousness of society could be answered in their time was through violent protest, through utilizing means that you and I might call even terroristic. Now, I'm not saying that Simon the Zealot was a terrorist. Please don't mistake me. But he was affiliated with a group who felt that it was necessary to use force in order to get the things of God accomplished in their world. And Jesus includes one of those in his uh, close followers. We don't know whether Judas Iscariot was a Pharisee. We do know that he ultimately betrayed Jesus. But in that betrayal, he seems to have close contact with the Pharisees that suggests the possibility that if he is not himself a Pharisee, he may have had some kind of affinity with them or have been at some point, a student of their group. Of course, there were the Sadducees also. And whereas the Pharisees tended to be particularly conservative in their viewpoint, in a, in a very generic sense of that term. Please don't mistake me trying to read back American political ideologies into that time. But they were conservative in the sense of their traditional attitudes about the scriptures. They believed in an afterlife. They believed in angels and demons. Whereas the Sadducees had a more liberalized notion of the scriptures. They did not believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in spiritual entities. And they were more closely associated with the royal households and the, the priestly lines and tended to be cozier with the Roman authorities because they had a very pragmatic approach, which was in order to do the things of God, we need to work with the powers that be, whereas the Pharisees tended to be more standoffish. But Jesus didn't approve of Pharisees or Sadducees, and yet it, it seems to be an indicator to us that he had Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes all in his close group. And in that, he was not necessarily endorsing any of those but he was inviting all sides now to a higher view. And that view was to let God rule and reign in our hearts. And that in our hearts, his rulership would manifest in a way that would manifest his rulership in our world. So Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem at the time of the feast, and the crowds are gathering around, they're all looking for him, and they're disagreeing about him. Some are saying he's a good man, others are saying no, he's leading people astray, so there are different sides to the public opinion about Jesus. And then, when he became to the temple and started to teach, these sides sort of erupt into a more verbal, vocal uh, dispute and debate about him. 
And yet Jesus teaches in a way that reflects truth, not just facts, not just even what is right or wrong, but a kind of innate righteousness that reveals the truth of God. And the people say about him, how did he learn so much? He's not formally educated. And Jesus says, my teaching isn't my own. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he says, I don't teach on my own authority. I don't teach according to my own intellect. I don't teach just based on my own understanding. That's, that's my summary of what he is saying in this statement. Now, make no mistake, it doesn't mean that he divorces himself from his intellect. It doesn't mean that he denies the reality of his own will. And yes, Jesus has a will distinct from the Father. How do I know? Because when he came into the garden and he was facing that crisis of the cross and he knew that it was God's will for him to go to it, he also knew that it wasn't his will. That he desired that if there was some way that that cup could pass from him. The very cup that passes to us that you and I are about to drink of in just a few minutes is a cup that Jesus says, if it's possible for me not to taste of this separation from you, God, on the cross, if it's possible for me not to have to come under the condemnation of sin, that as one who knew no sin, I will have to become sin so that these people can become the righteousness of God. If there's any other way for your will to be fulfilled in that, then let it pass from me. And what God seems to respond by the Spirit, what Jesus recognizes in that moment, in a moment in which he is distressed to the core, in which he is weeping and sweating blood, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. He turns away from the temptation of his own will and turns his face to God and says, your will be done. That's what he means when he says, my teaching is not my own. What he means is, my life belongs to God. My choices come from him. If anyone is willing to do God's will, Jesus says in verse 17, that one will know about what I teach. They'll know whether it's of God or not. You have that question, friend, are you a guest with us today and you're not familiar with the word of God or you haven't made a decision about whether you really would follow Jesus? Maybe as you're watching this message, you're considering both sides now, living your own way or going with God. And you say, well, I've read the Bible, but it doesn't quite make sense to me. And why this and why that? If you want to know the authority and truth of the word of God, you have to be willing to yield to the will of God. You have to be willing to say that God might show you how you're wrong and you'd be willing to take his advice. God might show you how you're dead in your sin and you'd be willing to partake of his sacrifice. And if you do, the will of God and the word of God will become known to you. Anyone who speaks about themselves seeks their own glory. That's what Jesus said. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Every time I've ever read this, I've always simply heard that as a statement that Jesus makes about himself. But he makes it in the third person. And I realize something. It isn't just about Jesus. Now, somebody might say this is heretical. 
But I just want to suggest to you, and you see if the Spirit of God would affirm this to you, that what Jesus is saying is, this is the way I live, and you can live this way too. That if you will seek the glory of God, rather than your own, if you will seek the will of God at the sacrifice of your own, then God will shine his favor on you and show his righteousness through you. Now, none of us could be in that place if it weren't for the grace of Jesus Christ himself. Because we all went astray and only the Spirit of God would draw us back. And the Spirit has come because the Son has sacrificed himself and gone to the Father so that the Spirit could come to us, so that we could be made one with them, with him, with the one and only God. Jesus later in the chapter says in verse 24, do not judge according to appearance to what you see outwardly. Judge with righteous judgment. I'm going to skip uh, a little bit more of that passage where there's a response from the people. The response shows that they still don't know what to make of it. And so as I come into the, the closing passages of this message, I want to talk with you about how can we live in this way in light of some of the challenges of our present moment. There is what I call the data dilemma. We are living in an information age, a deluge of data, a flood of facts. And some would say a flood of fake facts. And it's true that in these days, it's hard to know what you can really believe. Or the response of some people to that is to decide what they believe and believe it so strongly that they will brook no opposition. But friends, there are people who suggest that the world is flat on a basis like that. So beware, because no matter how certain you are of something, it doesn't make it true. But if something is true, then it is only by God's grace that you and I can understand that truth in a way in which we not only have a focus on the facts, but we have a spirit of wisdom by which to analyze them. In the days of uh, King David, he took a census, and I want to say something about that census, about how we deal with information. But there's another issue that challenges us with information, which is that you and I are often called, like the religious leaders were calling Jesus to make a decision, to one side or another, pick a side. And yet there's a dialectical delusion in thinking that everything has a binary answer. There's a divine decision available in almost any situation one can think of, but it often includes having an awareness not only of what you know, but what you can't know. Now, I mentioned David's census. He decides as king to take account of the people, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but the scripture says in 2 Samuel 21 and also 1 Chronicles 21, that God was displeased. Why would God be displeased that the king would count his people? The scripture doesn't tell us definitively what it is, but I think the implication is, when we come to interpret it, but in the context of those passages, that at least in part, God is displeased because David seems to be looking to rely upon numbers rather than the Lord. That maybe David is afraid that the numbers that would involve the tax rate and tax base, I suppose I should say, and the numbers that would be the enlistment numbers for the troops are where his real strength is. Now, David was a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13 and Acts 13 both say this. Old and New Testament agree. David was a man 
who is after God's heart, which really says David was a man who was living much in that way that Jesus was talking about, seeking God's glory rather than his own, seeking God's will rather than his own. But even such a one as him was susceptible to the temptation to think, maybe, maybe I need a little more information here. Maybe I need to take account. Maybe I need to make a decision based on what I see around me. It's not that information is bad. Please don't mishear me. Data is necessary for informed decision-making. God calls us to consider things in the light of the intellect that he has given us. But information can be accurate, it can be right, or it can be wrong, by the way. But even if we do everything available to us to validate that information, the information alone isn't necessarily righteous. There's a difference between right and unrighteous. There's a difference between wrong and un, uh, right and righteous, wrong and unrighteous. I don't know if I'm right and wrong, what I just said, but you hopefully get what I'm saying, right? There's a distinction between these. Data alone can't make decisions for us. Analysis is subject to error. But in these days, we have so much information coming at us from so many sources, so fast and hard and so opinionated, and there's so many pressures to adopt certain perspectives that people are becoming increasingly siloed in the echo chamber of their own philosophies and more and more dubious about sources and more and more divided from people. And honestly, friends, I do not believe that that reflects the will of God. Jesus' close disciples were arguably more aware of the information of his teaching than anyone else. And yet, they were consistently wrong about critical points. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter comes to Jesus and says, You are the Christ. Right? Jesus is saying, a bunch of my followers have left. Are you going to leave me too? And, and Peter says, where else would we go? Who else has the words of life? Who else knows the truth but you? You are the Messiah. And Jesus says to Peter, this isn't something that your own flesh and blood revealed. It's not just an intellectual understanding. But God revealed this to you. It's a spiritual revelation. But just a few verses later, when Jesus is saying, I am going to go to Jerusalem, I am going to go to the cross, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to die, Peter says, stop talking that way. It's discouraging people, and it's not right. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you are looking at things through the flesh and not according to the Spirit. Peter elsewhere, Mark, Matthew 26, says, Everyone else might betray you. I will never betray you. Jesus says, before the cock crows, you'll betray me three times. In Luke chapter 9, James and John, the other two of the three most intimate compatriots of Jesus, the inner circle, James, John, and Peter, all getting it wrong on stuff. Makes me feel better because I get it wrong all the time. They were going through a Samaritan village with Jesus. Jesus was speaking the truth to the Samaritan people, and the Samaritan people hated him because they were on the other side. See, they, there was both sides in Israel. There were the Samaritans to the north, and there were the Judeans to the south, and they didn't get along, and they didn't see things eye to eye. And these Samaritans, they didn't like Jesus. And James and John said, should we call down fire from heaven like the ancient prophets of old? And Jesus didn't say God doesn't do that kind of thing. What he said to them was, you don't know what spirit you are of. You're seeing things from an earthly perspective. But if you're going to see things from both sides now, you need to let the higher ways of God and the inner spirit of the Lord guide you. When he was going to the cross, on the evening when they shared of the communion feast, 
Jesus said, I'm going to the Father. And Philip said, just show us the Father. That's all we need. That, that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How about after the resurrection? When Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with two of the disciples who didn't even res recognize the resurrected Christ. But what they were saying was, Jesus died. We thought he was the Savior. We thought he was the Messiah. But it turns out that he wasn't. And he says to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for this to happen? Wasn't that in fact the will of God? They thought it was the worst thing that could ever happen. And Jesus was saying, don't be distressed. It was the will of God. But they hadn't seen it. And then by the Spirit, he opened their eyes. Their hearts were warmed. And they realized a new reality in the resurrection of Christ. The dialectical decision calls us to think about things on one side or another. And I'm not saying that there aren't definitive decisions to be made. But not everything can be boiled down into a right or wrong position. And even the things that can, you need to recognize that from the divine perspective, even when people are wrong, there's a righteous purpose that God has for them and for you towards them. So be humble about being too confident that you're right and someone else is wrong. Be humble about being too confident that you're wrong and somebody else is right. Recognize the reality that there are right and wrong. But, you know, it was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that got us astray to begin with. And what we really need is the insight of the Holy Spirit. That in the situation in which we are faced with right and wrong, it's not just about two opposing issues. There is also an over, overarching God. And that God would call us to consider things from his perspective. You know, what's funny is the more people become convinced about their own philosophical and ideological uh, uh, positioning, the more they get entrenched on either side of a fence, the less likely they are to be pleased with either side of the fence. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, you know, you, you people, this generation, and he's not just talking to them 2,000 years ago. When he says this generation, I believe he is talking about the generation of humanity living on the earth uh, in the time in, before Jesus returns. He says, what can I compare you to? You're like children in the marketplace. You don't like it when we say, let's play the flute and dance, and you don't like it when we say, let's play a dirge and mourn. In other words, you don't like it when we play wedding, and you don't like it when we play funeral. You don't like it any which way. And don't you feel like we're living in a world that way now? Go on Twitter. All you can find is people who want to complain no matter what people do. If you say something, it's wrong. If you didn't say something, it's wrong. If you waited to say something, it's wrong. If you spoke too early, it's wrong. You can't please all of these opinions. But wisdom is vindicated by our deeds. Jesus says, the fruit, you'll know them by their fruit. Look for love. Look for joy. Look for peace. Look for patience, for kindness, for goodness, for faithfulness, for gentleness, for self-control. And where you find that, the Spirit of God is there, no matter what side they're on. You are those, said Jesus to the Pharisees, who justify yourselves in the sight of people, but God knows your hearts. What people admire, the fashion and current thinking, is not what God admires. His ways are higher than us. The divine decision is not to judge according to the sight of the flesh, 
but to live in the righteousness that comes through faith in the Spirit. I'm going to ask if uh, I could be brought an element of the communion and if those here in the room would be served. If you have communion elements where you are, take them before you. If you don't, it's all right. Don't worry about that. Just join us in prayer. But recognize that these symbols and sacraments of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whether you have bread and cup there for you, they come to you in the Spirit. He comes to you in the Spirit. And it's in the Spirit that you and I are to walk. In Romans 8, the Lord says, don't walk according to the flesh. Walk according to the Spirit. Those who put their minds on the things of the flesh, they're going to carry out the fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh. They're going to bear the harvest of the flesh. But if you will carry out and carry on in the Spirit, you will bear out the fruit of the Spirit. The fleshly mind is set on death, but the mind of God is set on life. The mind that is set on the flesh is actually in opposition to God. And it doesn't subject itself to God's ways. Even if it wanted to, it wouldn't be able to because the flesh cannot please God. But if you're in the Spirit, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And you know what it says elsewhere, later in the chapter? The Spirit will enable you to put the flesh to death, the deeds of the body, so that you can be the children of God. We don't know what to pray for as we ought to. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. And God will work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When his friends and followers saw Jesus go to the cross, they thought it was the worst thing that could happen. Even though the night before, Jesus had taken bread and given thanks to God and broken it and said, this bread is my body. It's in his body, broken for us, that you and I are made whole. He prayed on that night, Lord, make them one even as you and I are one. So this one that comes to you in pieces is one who makes you whole and us together. We are those who pray for unity in our society. We'll never see it in our society if we don't have it in our community. And we have it in our community of faith because our community is founded in the body of Christ. Lord, we receive your body sacrificed for us. And with thanksgiving, Lord, we give ourselves to you as we receive. On that night, Jesus lifted the cup of the fruit of the vine and he said, this cup of the new covenant is in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Is there anywhere that God has put his finger on your life today and said, this is something that needs to change? An attitude that you have, a belief, a persuasion about yourself, about others? Is there anywhere that in your life, in looking today, 
through the lens of God's word, you realize I have a need and I don't know how to solve it. I have a decision and I don't know how to make it. Is there anywhere in your life a relationship, a resource, any kind of reality that is broken, that is dying, that is dead, and it needs the resurrection life of the Lord? Who among us cannot say yes to these things? The Lord reaches to you today and says, my blood forgives your sin. My spirit illuminates your life and my will will solve your problems. It doesn't mean that you'll never have any challenge anymore. It means that you will be able to face every challenge in my spirit and know that no matter what happens, no matter what outcome, no matter what election, no matter what leader, no matter what ruler, no matter even if you die, yet you will live because all things will be able to be worked together for your good and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Receive that love today. Believe that love. Receive the forgiveness of sins and the fullness of the Spirit as you receive this cup of the new covenant in His blood. Hallelujah, Lord. We receive and we believe and we rejoice. We rejoice in the healing that you've done in our bodies. We rejoice in the illumination of our minds. We rejoice in the confidence of your will, we rejoice to pray even as you taught us to pray long ago. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our prayer once again today, Lord. And we know it is a prayer that you are answering. Glory be to your name. Amen and amen.